Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Danderen shortly. But as we record, it's two nights from the Matildas return leg Olympic qualifier against Uzbekistan at a sold-out Marvel Stadium in Melbourne's Docklands. For a while, in the sparsely filled Millie Stadium in Tashkent, it looked like there'd be plenty of work to do at home as the hard-working and well-organised locals under the acclaimed Japanese defender Midori Honda with little support from the home crowd, mind you, stoutly resisted. Meanwhile, the Matildas played into their hands, spurning repeated chances till the veteran Michelle Heyman came on and sparked a three-goal blitz in 12 minutes, effectively stamping the Australians' passports to Paris. We'll look at the game to open the show and close with another special edition of World Cup Corner from our man in Tashkent, the globe-trotting Michael Edgley, who recorded a couple of lovely chats in the Green and Gold Army coach as they left the stadium. Then back to the local news. Last week, we had a conversation with Steve Horvat, CEO of Western United, about the stadium progress at his club, which got plenty of traction. This week, we're going to dig a little deeper into what looks like more good news for the A-Leagues, the new ownership I speak of at the Perth Glory, with the Polygra Group announced as the new owners following the roller coaster Tony Sage era. Is this another full storm or are we about to see the giant reawakening? CEO Anthony Radich certainly thinks so. We'll ask him what we hope are the questions on everybody's lips. Then... What might have been a day of triumph for Chelsea under the reign of Maurizio Pochettino after they went so close a week ago to taking the points against Manchester City at their home fortress led to more questions than answers at Wembley as the billion-dollar bottle jobs, as Gary Neville now infamously described them, failed to overcome a young Liverpool side in the Carabao Cup final. We'll unpick the scabs with Liam Toomey from The Athletic and find out from him whether this was a hiccup on an otherwise positive cup run or whether it points to a deeper malaise at Stamford Bridge. Now, Derek, um, what did you make of it? Or are you just happy that Arsenal are purring along and scoring bags for fun? Yeah, I, I wasn't too focused on the Carabao Cup, Rob. From what I could see and looking at the highlights, uh, Liverpool had a, a decent start to the game. Chelsea then had lots of chances towards the end of the second half and really should have taken one of them. Uh, but what's drawn the air of most of the Chelsea fans is Chelsea's response in uh, extra time, which was mm. a bit dour and defensive as opposed to going at uh, the young Liverpool substitutes that you referred to uh, before um, and really didn't take advantage of of that. So, uh, and then when the, the winner came, it kind of felt inevitable and deserved and Chelsea were, the, were their own worst enemies. So I'm sure we'll be asking... Liam Toomey, if, if this result is, uh, you know, how costly it's going to be for Maurizio Pochettino and a, a growing base of disgruntled uh, Chelsea fans. But in terms of the Klopp uh, victory tour, it was the perfect start. Yeah, it sure was. It took me back to my childhood, actually. I used to love listening to the radio, listening to sports coverage from around the world on the radio. And uh, because this game was on being sports, there was no real chance. I, I mean, we've got every other subscription channel uh, uh, that there is, but I don't have that one. So I woke up at 3.30 in the morning and realised that it must be, you know, about uh, uh, the midway point of the second half. So uh, checked the score on the BBC. It was nil all. So popped the AirPods into my ears and uh, tuned into the BBC World Service, Willem, and, um, and just... Uh, just enjoyed uh, 
the the rest of the game and and was just falling asleep as I heard that goal uh, that eventually won the game. Well, it's a shame you were unfortunately not on uh, on the, the the TV broadcast, the Sky broadcast, Rob, because best on ground was Gary Neville, just ruthless, ripping into Chelsea at every opportunity. You'd think as a Man U fan, he'd be perhaps anti-Liverpool, but maybe he's been softened up by all those hours, chatting to his red mate, Jamie Carragher. Absolutely no sympathy whatsoever, he said, for Chelsea. The uh, the blue billion-pound bottle jobs, uh, he was uh, yeah, he was throwing them left, right and centre, Gary. But uh, that was probably deserved for Liverpool. Van Dijk did score a, a very similar goal ahead of, in regular time, which was ruled out for uh, or by the VAR. So I think that was probably the uh, the right result in the end. Yeah, no, I think, as you say, Matt, they had to win the game twice. And uh, I think uh, as much as Miss Maurizio Pochettino was sort of phlegmatic towards the end, you know, realising his team didn't take the chances that they had, I would have loved to have seen the press conference with Jürgen Klopp if they had lost that after that, uh, that goal was disallowed. Anyway, mate, lots more news. Why don't we get stuck into it? Yeah, the Matildas are going to take a three-goal advantage into Wednesday's second-leg Olympic qualifier against Uzbekistan in Melbourne. Playing in cold conditions in Tashkent, the side did seem a little frozen in front of goal at times before Michelle Heyman, off the bench, scored her first Matildas goal since the 2016 Olympics. Heyman near post. Hunt as well. Ford comes short. It's towards Hunt and Heyman. Heyman, it's in! Michelle Heyman's done it! And the story is complete. A Mary Fowler solo strike and a Catley Ford link-up uh, followed and the side uh, will rest a little bit easier ahead of that Marvel Stadium sellout to come. Uh, here's a little bit more of Michelle, or here is Michelle Heyman, uh, speaking on her return and also the prospect of the return fixture. It's incredible. Um, it, it really means like that's a massive <laughs> big ride that I've been on um, and I needed that time away. But at the same time, being back with the team, it's just been so surreal and, and it's just yeah unbelievable. I had tears I remember sitting in the stands watching the girls in the World Cup and now for myself to be able to get out on the field to play in front of my friends and family it's going to be a surreal moment and I've never had that. I've never had many of my friends and family come watch me play so it's going to be really special. Rob, you were pumped up for this one. I thought perhaps the uh, Green and Gold Army might have called you over to do some opposition analysis. You were hot onto the prospect of uh, uh, an Uzbek trap, but it didn't play out that way. And uh, while I did have to work hard for the initial goal, uh, once uh, that came through, it did uh, did round out as a relatively comfortable 3-0 win in the end. Yeah, yeah fair play to um, to Tony Gustafsson and uh, uh, the, uh, the Matildas uh, organisational group around them. Um, it did feel as that second half wore on that, all of the opportunities, um, Emily Van Egmond um, missed, missed several of them. And uh, as good a player as she is and as a reliable stalwart she has been for the Matildas over many years, uh, she's not the solution in front of goals. Um, you, you need a predator, and uh, and that's what Michelle Heyman proved to be. And and given the 24-hour the turnaround, the fact that they were travelling from the heat of Dubai to the cold of uh, Uzbekistan, uh, there needed to be a, a very finely tuned preparation around it. But... Obviously, they needed to get the result, and 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 you couldn't have asked in the end for for a better outcome. But look, uh, I, I was really impressed by the uh, the Uzbeki women, the way that they played. They were well organised. Uh, um, Midori Honda was uh, a forty three cap uh, a Japanese um, defensive. Uh, well, I think. Uh, legend, uh, given that she came through in the in the pioneer days of Japanese women's football, and uh, at fifty nine years old, she uh, she's a, 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 a football person through and through, and really managed to get these uh, girls organised with nearly four weeks in camp. Uh, what I was most disappointed about, though, was the the fact that 
you know, it feels like there's a, a patriarchy, and we did get some thoughts from Edge um, in our in our WhatsApp chat that um, that still um, is uh, is holding a, a vice like grip on on the uh, uh, let's say the the football sporting broader women's um, opportunities in in that country because you know prior to that game the, the biggest crowd of women's football match had ever uh, achieved at home was around 2000 they got about two and a half thousand there you know we're going to pack marvel stadium and and this is the the bright new future of women's sport but we only have to look at what we saw on saturday night our time with with you know, two men and a dog at that stadium. Um, the, I felt, felt for the poor girls. If it had a, been a packed stadium and that 70-minute mark had come around Willem um, and it was still nil all, I, I, I wonder whether the, the result might have been different. The Central Coast Mariners defeated MacArthur 3-2 in extra time of last week's AFC Cup ASEAN Zonal Final. The Mariners pocketed $153,000 for the result and set up a two-legged interzonal semi-final against Odisha of India next month. Their clash with the Bulls was a cracker, that being the Mariners. All five goals traded after the 80th minute mark and then into extra time with Ronald Barcelou's winner coming in the final minute of extra time, 120th. Here's a chance, maybe late one. The Mariners have pinched it. Ronald Barcelos with only seconds remaining. It popped up for the Brazilian and he pounced it into the bottom corner. And the Mariners, barring a late miracle now, are going to head through to the interzonal semi final. So those Odisha matches come at home on March 7 and then away on March 14. Uh, that side sits top of the Indian Super League and are led by 36-year-old uh, Roy Krishna. So going to be good to see Roy back on Australian soil. And well done to Mark Jackson, by the way. Mariners uh, gaffer for rotating his squad so well. Uh, three wins in a week, two in the league and one in Asia. To English football, uh, in particular, uh, Queen's Park Rangers as a club are mourning the loss of Stan Bowles, uh, who was past aged 75. Bowles played 560 games in England, 315 of which came at Loftus Road uh, between 1972 and 79, where he scored 97 goals. He was capped five times by the three Lions and also turned out for Manchester City, Crewe, Berry, and Carlisle, among others. Derek was known as the great entertainer and in 2022 uh, had a stand named after him at Loftus Road. What more can you tell us? Yeah, well, I think people... Well, we would say that he should have had more England caps uh, than he did. Uh, a maverick talent, maybe two maverick uh, for the national side. But one of those names that is evocative of that that era of football, uh, 1970s, certainly the most distinguished um, or one of the most distinguished players to, to wear the blue and white hoops of Queen's Park Rangers. And I was listening to a funny story about him today where uh, he went over to take a corner in a game. The uh, away fans are giving him dog's abuse. Um, he put his finger up in the air, licked his finger, put it up in the air as if to check the wind and then took the corner, which subsequently curled into the far post and went straight in. So uh, to which he turned around and bowed at the uh, at the away supporters. So that, if that's not a mark of the man, I don't know what is, but Certainly a rare talent, and I'm sure will be sadly missed. 
Just another A-League tidbit before we uh, before we jump into Socceroos and Matilda Central. Jake Brimmer and Marco Rojas have reportedly signed deals with the incoming Auckland side, who are still at this point nameless. Uh, Steve Corica is the manager. He's got his old Sydney FC mate Terry McFlynn alongside him as talent identifier. And Dean Hennessy, an old friend of ours uh, on this program, used to tell me that Terry, or Tell, as Dino called him, is as smart an operator uh, as there is in Australian football. Uh, that news around Brimmer and Rojas was only really reported on FTBL, nowhere else, oddly. So we'll watch this space on that, uh, Rob. But both make sense, given that Rojas, obviously, is a, a Kiwi and into the latter years of his career. So that would be a nice homecoming signing. And Brimmer, at 25, is a, a top player in the league, but needs to be the man in a side. And he's fallen victim to, uh, to Tony Popovich's revolving door of a starting 11 this season. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Now is the time to register your interest in future tours, be they to the Paris 2024 Olympics or the 2026 Men's World Cup in the US, Canada and Mexico. There is only one option. Head to ggatravel.com.au. Rob, at what point can we start to get excited about St. Pauli? They've had another win away this time to second-placed Holston Keel. It was 4-3. Connor Metcalf with the goal and an assist. Uh, Jackson Irvine also played a full match, and that opens up a six-point gap atop the table. They've been so close but fallen away uh, at, in the dying stages of the last two seasons, but things are looking uh, pretty sunny at the minute. Yeah, they sure are. I was uh, watching um, Jackson's... Uh Twitter th thread uh, and uh, posted a, a brilliant goal and the reaction. It's uh, it's fascinating trying to sort of make sense uh, of of the German um, posts on on that uh, thread after he uh, he writes what he writes in English and uh, I do sort of copy and paste a few into the the, the Google Translator. But uh, you say at what point we we should um, we should get excited? So you know we're twenty four rounds in. Uh, there's there's ten matches to go. Um, as you say, St. Pauli are, are, are clear on top, but uh, uh, on 48, um, you've got Holston Kiel 42, and then Hamburger uh, in the in that promotional um, playoff group uh, in third, 41 points. So, you know, we talked to Rob Tanner last week, and and we were almost sort of uh, uh, ahead of ourselves before they lost another game, and suddenly. The gap between Leeds and and the, and the chasing group of Southampton it all um, starts to, to look a little bit more looming, a little bit more precious. So I think um, you know, with if there's ten games to go, thirty points on offer, uh, you probably want to wait at least two or three more rounds uh, with this kind of form before you you start to think that um, that they've done the job. You mentioned Leicester in the championship there. Uh... Ipswich Town seemed to have been a little bit forgotten over the past month or so, but Maslongo and Cam Burgess both played full matches on the weekend. So Ipswich had a 3-1 win over Birmingham City, and they actually slide up uh, level with Leeds in second on 72 points. So still right in the mix uh, for automatic promotion in England. And Christian Volpato, who was a name on everyone's lips ahead of the 2022 World Cup when he uh, still to that point was denying Graham Arnold uh, a Socceroos call-up. He has committed to uh, Australia since. Uh, he started for Sassuolo uh, and got through 68 minutes of their 3-2 loss to Empoli in the Serie A. Now I say he's committed. He could easily uncommit at any point, but good to see an Australian uh, playing top-level minutes in Europe. And to a couple of managers to close, Harry Kuehl's had a great win uh, and a great week. That should be with Yokohama F. Marinos. Uh, two wins from two that see them move into the last eight of the Champions League and then kick off their league season with a 2-1 win away to Tokyo Verde. Uh, and Kevin Musket has unfortunately lost his first match in charge of Shanghai Port. They lost the Chinese Super Cup final, uh, but they move ahead to their opening league commitment this weekend against Wuhan Three Towns. So good luck to Muskie. 
Excellent. All right, Willem. Um, nice, uh, nice uh, little wrap of what's going on in Green and Gold Army style. Okay, after the break, um, it's been a long time coming, but uh, the, the Tony Sage era uh, is now over and we've been waiting for, uh, through a few fall storms, for, for the announcement of, of a new owner of Perth Glory, who, um, as we all remember uh, back in the early days, they were the the prototype club of an A-League club. They uh, they'd had the success, they had the marketing, they had the fans, they uh, they had pretty much everything that, uh, that we'd hoped for, but it, then it all went sour. Uh, the man who's planning to reinvigorate that club is uh, Ross Peligra, and he's done it around the world. Um, the uh, CEO at that club, Anthony Radich, um, he's uh, he's certainly in for uh, uh, the ride, and uh, we're going to have a chat to him about uh, about his insights into the club, what we can expect in the short to medium term, and whether this is the genuine reawakening of that giant. So stick around after the break. Anthony Radich next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. The last couple of weeks, we've seen some good news around the A-Leagues. Last week, we talked to Steve Horvat about the the announcements that uh, Western United will finally be playing at their new stadium and the the build is going ahead. And and in the same sort of period of a few days, we heard that the Pelica Group had taken over ownership of the Perth Gloria after the roller coaster period of, uh, of the Tony Sage era and uh, the CEO of, of uh, Perth Glory is, is joining us now to, to chat about it, all the expectations for the future. And Anthony Radich, welcome for the first time to Box to Box. Thanks very much, Rob. Pleasure to be here. No, not at all, mate. And and I mentioned Ross Pelligra. Um, you know, it was, uh, and I think most people within football see this as, as a real positive story for, for Perth Glory, who we talked about it off the top of our show uh, that. Uh, it really was the prototype of an A-League club when the whole competition got going. And, uh, you know, we've seen what the glory days look like, but uh, but they haven't been uh, around for a while. So, you know, Ross Pelligri has aspirations for the future, uh, big aspirations from small things like 3,000 free tickets for the under-16s for Saturday's match to, to big things like the permanent training administration facilities. Can you, can you talk about... Uh, a time frame for those sorts of things, the bigger picture items uh, uh, on the agenda. Yeah, um, in terms of um, in terms of the bigger picture, in terms of the vision for a home, um, that's something that the, the club has been aspiring to for some time. Um, pre pre Ross, um, one of the silver linings to sort of come out of um, you know, our displacement into out to Macedonia Park and into the city of Stirling was we've got to, to form a, a really close relationship um, with that local government um, and you know sort of inform them of, of our aspirations in that regard. Um, and that's opened up discussions there, and you know, that's, uh, there's, a, there's an identified site um, within that locality, although we've looked at others as well. Um, and having someone like Ross and Ross's group um, having the ability to bring it to life um, is really exciting. Um, that particular site in Stirling has, has a lot of potential in terms of where it's located, in terms of proximity to public transport and the like, and, and the existing stadium and, and the sheer size um, of the footprint that is available. But having Having a developer that can actually bring it to life um, takes it to another level. So we're really excited by that. And like I said, that's just one site. There are there are, there are a few sites we're looking at. But um, you know, for us to have a home and be sustainable long term, um, you know, having a, a dedicated state of the art training and facilities is really important. Um, we have our, our academy, our women's, our teams, our men, sort of training and playing at all different different places around Perth. Um, and you know, having to try to procure fields and venues and the like is you know it's a job in itself. So. 
being able to bring everyone under the one banner, uh, make everyone feel like a home, you know, have a proper clubhouse that people can feel connected to and belong to. It's, again, it's, it's it's critical to the you know, long long term sustainability of the club, and we're really excited by what um, what Ross's group can bring and you know, bring that uh, dream to life. Yeah, it sounds like that. I mean, it's easy to use throwaway terms like the glory days. It's convenient, you know, the name of the club, of course. But uh, you know, we're we're talking about um, about the the tangible um, outcome of of success that um, that occurred on the field. And you know, Ross talked about his memories of the club as a kid and how that's a huge part of uh, you know the club still to this day. Um, you know, and and the motivation of you and him and the and the broader group around you is to to rekindle that magic of the late nineties and and you know that Tony Popovich era, which uh, which so many recall so fondly. And those of us on the east coast uh, remember with you know not a little bit of jealousy the fact that you know that uh, who could forget that night at Optus Stadium admittedly the result wasn't what you, you were after but I mean football was absolutely firing on all four cylinders at the time wasn't it? Yeah absolutely and you know the glory was like you said the glory was probably ahead of its time there a bit of a um, you know a bit of a scene setter really for sport and a bit of a trendsetter you know ahead of its time in terms of what it offered from a from an entertainment point of view I think you know Kudos to, to Nick Tarner and, and Paul Lascos and, and their vision. Um, you know, at the time, obviously, it's one of the clubs that you know, wasn't centred around you know, ethnic lines at the time, but um, stood for the stood for the city. And um, I mean, what they delivered in terms of a game day entertainment experience product was was second to none. Um, you know, it was sort of pre the Big Bash, if you like, with what the Big Bash has sort of come um, involved into. Um, and you know, together they obviously invested in, in getting the best talent um, over here to Perth, both local and um, you know, interstate. And then on top of that, we're just really committed to the, the local community, um, you know, and really having players out there and engage with the local community. So I think, you know, those ingredients, you know, really shouldn't change. Um, it's just, you know, having the ability to go out there and be committed and dedicated to making making sure that you're, you know, doing your very best in those areas. Anthony, congrats on the sale. Just before we look forward uh, to what it is going to look like under the Polygra Group, can you give us a bit of an insight into what the last seven months have have looked like since? Tony Sage handed back his license in uh, in July of, of 2023. Yeah, the last seven months, um, yeah, probably you know some some of the the trials and tribulations that had to endure you know, go beyond that. But for the last seven months, you know, since, since the handing back of the license, um, you know, initially initially um, you know it was, it was we sort of um, saw it as an exciting opportunity because we didn't foresee that you know we'd we'd be in the receivership position for too long. Um, it was all indicated we were trying to get it done before the start of the season. Um, and we were you know, well progressed to that end, um, and then obviously the unfortunate events of, of the failed ownership attempt. Um, that was a real kick in the gut for everyone concerned. And um, you know, obviously, the, the longer that goes, um, just that sheer uncertainty just has a, a rippling effect right across the club. I think the players have been absolutely amazing in terms of their resilience and, and their stoicism. You know, in, in light of those circumstances, it hasn't you know done a great job of not letting it really affect them. Um, and our staff have been amazing as well. Um, but, you know, the longer it goes, the more uncertain it is. It's harder. You know, your fans don't know where you're headed. Your members don't know what's going on. Your corporates are reluctant to engage because they want a sense of hope and optimism and direction, which you, you can't afford them, you know, in, in that period of uncertainty. So um, in terms of the way we conduct the business and the like, operationally, it's fine. It was just, you know, we just had that cloud hanging over our head. And then, you know, just we were then impacted, you know, in around the, the, the transfer period, which was a result of where we were at. And, you know, that wasn't that wasn't um, easy to deal with or, or to accept. And um, but it, you know, it's part of the course of you know where the where the club was at. Um, we have to be accepting of it, but you know, that's easier said than done. But um, 
yeah, not a great period, but you know, you know, having this news of certainty, um, you know, the vision that the political group's got, um, you know, they're well capitalised, but they're serious about, you know, they've got a longer term view, and I think that's that's really exciting for the club. That you know, it's not about the next two to three years; it's it's, it's beyond. And you know, that that dedication to investing in a new home, you know, sort of. Um, you know, shows the faith that they do have in, in what they have to deliver to the club and, and the members of the band. If I can just throw one tricky one at you, uh, Anthony, before looking at some sort of lighter ones on field, I think it would be uh, remiss of us not to ask about Marco or Mark Bresciano's role in this sale over the past sort of seven months or so. So on the one hand, he is a director at Football Australia working on their behalf to find the club a new owner. And then on the other, he's also in partnership with with Poligra, with Catania in, uh, in City of Chi in Italy. So what is... And it's not like he's sitting on the APL board. He is sort of slightly abreast with, with Football Australia these days. But what's been done to ensure that, that conflicts you know, are not present and won't arise? And to really sort of drive to the heart of the question, is is Bresch going to be a director at Perth uh, and simultaneously on the on the Football Australia board? Yeah, and probably one directed directly to the political group, um, to be honest, uh, to be completely frank. Um, but at this current stage, I don't believe he is a director um, You know, with, with the group. Um, and that may change down the track. Um, so at the moment, not. Um, and my dealings with Mark have been limited. I've met him um, once when they came out um, a few weeks back. Um, but yeah, in order to get a you know an accurate assessment of where that sits, probably you know best select um, direct to the to the group itself. Fair call on the field. Uh, you're the form team in the in the men's competition, undefeated through the last six. Uh, although coming from a, a fair way back, Alan Stachich uh, is your your man at the minute. He was unhappy earlier about the departures of Salim Khalifi and uh, and Oliver Bazanich through various means, but he's uh, it's recently been port- reported he's bought a new home in in South Fremantle and he's speaking about raising expectations in the back half of the year. So clearly, uh, yeah, he's he's your man going forward. Yeah, we know he's been he's been fantastic since he's come on board, and you know he knew what he was signing up to. He probably didn't foresee you know, to the extent of some of the issues he's had to deal with, like like many of us. But um, you know the way he's just, the way he's dealt with the adversity and just pushed through, and has a great sense of belief in his own ability. And um, I think that the playing group are really warm to Alan and what he offers. And um, you know we're starting to see the the results of, of you know his attributes as a person and as a coach. Um, you know, in difficult circumstances, you know, we, we, we'd be lying to say that, you know, we've got the depth of the talent of some other team, but I think he's extracting the, the very best out of the of what he has to um, play with at the moment, you know, in, in tough circumstances. And the way the team's responded and the nature of the way they've played, it's just it's been great. They're playing with a lot of heart and desire and just that, um, the never say die attitude, which is one of the most powerful ones. And that heart and desire was replicated in the stands on Saturday night against uh, against Wellington. Anthony, you've been part of the uh, of the glory on and off for a long time. What did it stir within you to see the shed packed and the junior terrace before that packed, uh, eight thousand in the house? And I understand you had uh, some competition on your hands with the WWE in town as well. So that was you know a wholly wholly positive evening. I would have thought. Yeah, it's fantastic to see. And, and to be honest, like we've seen we've seen that that youthful element sort of um, starting to grow week in week out. Um, and just the, the sheer atmosphere, like you said, um, we've, we've missed that for, for a while and the, and the players have missed that, but just the, the level of volume they bring, it, it really is an advantage, you know, on your home deck. And um, it's just really lovely and, and pleasing to see that, you know, that the, the players can be rewarded with that level of support and we're really grateful for it. And hopefully it's the start of, you know, better days and more days at HBF Park or more nights at HBF Park at the and a, a final one, Anthony. Alex Parker signed a, a new two-year deal at the start of the season. The uh, the women's manager. It's it's been a long build, and uh, the uh, the side are level on points with sixth. Uh, although, if you were to miss the finals, that would be the case for the fifth straight year. So, how do you view the state of the women's program as we uh, as we speak? 
Yeah, we started off really well. We had a, had a really good uh, rhythm about us, and we had a good spread of um, contributors um, early doors. Um, to be fair, it's, it's, it's sort of fallen away a little bit. Um, no one's been happy with the results we've got, and I think other teams have probably worked us out a little bit. So now, you know, the challenge is afoot for Alex and his team, and now they're big committed. And, you know, I know they spent the best part of the weekend as a football staff trying to work out how they're going to navigate this. You know, the, the final few games, um, so we don't, you know. Don't miss out on the opportunity finals. That's definitely, most definitely, the target we set as a as a club and as a team. Um, you know, and it'd be just reward for, you know, the, the foresight that he's had and the investment he's put on in the last few years to, from where he came came from when he first came on board. Um, so we're determined not to let that happen. So, yeah, fingers crossed we can get get the show back on the road. Um, but yeah, disappointed. I think we're all disappointed as a collective. We just need to have a, a deep look in just the, the reasons why. Um, but um, like I said, they, they, they spent the best part of the weekend making a priority to, to really come home with a wet sail. Anthony, outside of that, all positive. Great to speak to you in uh, in in yeah of, of following such uh, great news. So once again, congratulations on the sale. And yeah, it does feel like the uh, the glory days, as Rob mentioned off the top, are maybe just uh, a little bit closer than they were a couple of weeks ago. So great to have you on Box to Box. Thanks, Jens. It's been a pleasure. Perth Glory CEO Anthony Radich there. Stick around on the other side of the break. The Athletics Chelsea correspondent Liam Toomey will pick through uh, their loss in the AFL Cup final. Hey, hey, it's Chemist Warehouse time. Willem, I'm, I'm missing a, a bit of um, the background harmonies. So bup, you should bup. get those from me. That's better. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and Edge is gone. Uh, we'll get them from him when he comes back. I, I'm not really... I, I think Derek needs to get down to Chemist Warehouse. He's got that husky voice going. Derek, how are you feeling, mate? Um, better than usual on a Monday, but yeah, still carrying my share of ailments from the kids. Well, you get down to the local Chemist Warehouse. So we'll talk a bit more about the Click and Collect, of course, uh, because right now, um, Health Paracetamol, the Wagner Health Paracetamol, you might need some of that um, in the middle of the night to, to cure the headache that tends to pound at the worst possible hours. 500 milligram, 100 tablets for just $4.99. Now, that is a deal. Now, for the kids, Derek, buy Solvent Chesty Fort. 50 tablets, $11.99. I think uh, H might be a little young for those, but Maeve, uh, she'd be about the right age. Sounds good to me. They're bringing everything home from take care at the moment so I need all the help I can get. All right, well I know I between my Thomas and Alexander mate I went through plenty of the Panadol children's one to five years strawberry flavour 200 mils for 1549 you got to as a parent have these things stocked as I'm sure I'm seeing Adam Maloney there nod away uh, with kids you get them at all hours of the night you've got to be stocked up Zyrtec hay fever and allergy 70 tablets for 3799 for the runny noses and the hay fever that's a shocking thing now remember Chemist Warehouse is committed to making healthcare more affordable for all Australians. If you're an Australian pensioner, veteran or concession card holder, you can save a dollar off your prescription. Excludes brand price minimum. Chemist Warehouse, the great savings, they're every single day. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is box to box, and uh, some might uh, accuse me of being a, a nasty Liverpool supporter for organising our next guest in the hope that Liverpool would win uh, the Carabao Cup final, and uh, and we could wallow in his glory. And uh, and Liam Toomey from the Athletic, he's always fantastic to us, and uh, he set the whole conversation up nicely by by uh, uh, sitting on the psychologist's couch uh, as we watched the video. Uh, Liam, uh, before I, I introduce you, I, I I went back. I love reading some articles. Of 
prognostications of what might happen after the event. And, and you wrote, uh, lift the trophy and the whole club will benefit from an injection of belief that the project is on track. Lose and the team's fragile confidence will suffer another dent, while head coach Maurizio Pochettino's task of winning over a doubting fan base will become even harder. Mate, look, I don't think you could have predicted any better. Um, uh, the fallout has been massive, whether it's listening to 606 or Gary Neville or reading some of the copy. It's been vicious. Yeah, and it was always likely to be. I mean, Neville's blue billion-pound bottle jobs line has been trending and it feels like has has gone halfway around the world before Mauricio Pochettino's attempts at nuance even got out of bed in the press conference. Um, mm, yeah. It's it the 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 final reckoning is is harsh on Chelsea. The 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 you know the circumstances and the perception of how they lost this game and who they lost it to, particularly in extra time, in terms of who Liverpool had on the pitch. Um, I think going back to the line of mine that you quoted, what strikes me looking back now is that Chelsea went into this final needing to win a trophy to to bind everyone together, you know, to bind this group, to bind the coach together and to reconnect with the fans. Liverpool didn't need any of that. You know, they've been building that for nine years under Jurgen Klopp. And in the end, I think that was maybe the main reason they won. I think they they just have a superior mentality that clearly, you know, bleeds right through the youth groups at Kirby, not um, not just the first team at Liverpool. And I think it was a massive validation of everything Klopp's built. But clearly, on the other end, it's it's prompted massive recriminations at Chelsea. Is it just a, a convenient sort of low-hanging fruit to to throw out the billion dollars versus the academy team? I mean, admittedly, you know, I, I was reading uh, the blog on the BBC. It was the the most teenagers to play in a Carabao Cup final since Arsenal in two thousand and seven. Jaden Dans, Bobby Clark, and James McConnell. So, um, uh, so uh, Klopp clears the bench to put these boys out, literally boys, um, to to win the game. And, uh, and the contrast with Mudrick going out signed for uh, a, a multi-million pound stroke euro contract and unable to get the job when, when it was all on the line. Is that just convenient stuff here or, or are we talking about a deeper malaise? Well, I don't, I don't think the reality is ever as simple as a, as a one-line assessment that's heavy on easy narrative and alliteration. Um, it was a good line. I'm not. I'm not as a journalist. So, uh, uh, I'm not uh, criticising it. Um, you know, Chelsea started with two of their better performers on the day were Levi Colwell and Conor Gallagher, academy graduates. The average age of their starting eleven at the start of the, the game and at the start of extra time, even after Klopp subs, was younger than Liverpool's. Um, so it's the picture is a bit more nuanced, but equally. Klopp did something, I think, that no other elite coach would do in those circumstances. To bring on two 19-year-olds in James McConnell and, and Bobby Clark, who have less than 10 professional appearances to their name, and to bring on one, another in Jaden Dans, who I think it was his second professional appearance, you don't see that in cup in major cup finals. Um, it, it was an incredible move from Klopp, I think. 99% of, of coaches in the same situation would just stick with the same tired old legs and 
take a step back, change the way they were playing, and maybe, you know, just wait for penalties. Um, in, more akin to what Chelsea did, really, as their as their legs faded and Pochettino admitted afterwards. But but Klopp was so committed to the idea of what Liverpool are that he he his rationale seemed to be I'm going to bring on these these boys so we can keep playing like Liverpool on the front foot aggressive trying to win the game before penalties and ultimately the way the game played out I think was the biggest validation of the way he operates the way he harnesses psychology in a way that I, I don't think any other coach does um, I don't want to come on here and talk exclusively about Klopp because I know you brought me on here to talk about Chelsea, but I do think yesterday was a lot about him. Um, but clearly, on the Chelsea end, it's it it's a it's a problem the way that game played out because they they had the chances to win in the ninety, particularly in the last twenty minutes before Klopp, Klopp made those subs. Chelsea were the team with the legs; they were picking apart Liverpool's press. Uh, it was only really Virgil Van Dijk who I thought was immense throughout the whole game and and Canate who kept Liverpool in it well I guess I mean Kelleher made some great saves didn't he um but they were hanging on and then it felt like in extra time maybe partly because of what Klopp chose to do as well as be getting tired themselves Chelsea seemed to be paralyzed by the fear of losing to this team with several kids in it and what that would look like in much the same way that I remembered them looking at Spurs in November when Spurs went down to nine men and suddenly the prospect of defeat makes you look totally ridiculous and utterly humiliates you. Um, and I think that that was quite difficult for Chelsea to deal with mentally then. And I think it was difficult for them to deal with at Wembley as well. And now they have to deal with the fallout. Chelsea aren't a sympathetic club at the best of times and everyone's having a good laugh at their expense now. Liam, that's six uh, consecutive defeats in finals for Chelsea. I'm sorry to have to remind you of that stat, but it's... Uh, in, in Wembley Cup finals. Yeah, yeah which is which is really compelling. Uh, Chelsea, a club that you just associate with success, silverware, used to hoover in the Abramovich era, seemingly used to hoover up trophies um, for fun, um, you know, a lot of this goes back before the Todd Bowley era, before um, Mauricio Pochettino. Is there anything that you can put to this run of uh, run of results, uh, or is you know, is it just that Chelsea just slowly but surely have just become a less competitive side over time? Yeah, I think it's hard to draw a clear through line because, as you say. You know, th- th- this isn't something that, that rests on the new ownership. That Those standards started to slip in the final years, the Abramovich era. Chelsea were no longer the expert winners of, of finals that we'd come to know in their, in their absolute peak years. Um, I think if there is a through line, it's just that the teams that have, the Chelsea teams that have been in these finals haven't been as good as the ones who were winning consistently. Uh, the quality of the individuals in those teams has not been as good, and maybe the the personalities as well have not compared to the likes of you know John Terry, Frank Lampard, Didier Drogba, Petr Cech, the the kind of personalities that 
were strong enough to deal with those occasions and and get over the line whatever way they could really um i i think because each final is so particular and exists in its own unique context i don't think in and of itself the record is hugely significant it's only significant in as much as the chelsea players and maybe pochettino begin to give credence to it you know and if it's in their minds when they reach a final then it does matter um because then it can become a bit of a mental hang up i don't know whether it was in their minds ahead of this game i i'm not entirely sure that it was because i think it's such a new team I think the the nerves that we saw, and we did see nerves in the first half. There were lots of uncharacteristic loose touches, sloppy passes. Um, I think that was more to do with the fact that a lot of these Chelsea players just haven't been in a game like this before, even individually, certainly not together. Are there leaders emerging in this team? You kind of mentioned John Terry and Frank Lampard and you know others that have come before. Uh, a lot of people calling out maybe a lack of leadership in in this game, but are there emerging leaders in the squad? You know, Cole Palmer seems to be someone that has something a bit more about him. Um, obviously, Conor Gallagher's the, the local player that you that, that you mentioned, albeit you know, soundings are that they're looking to get rid uh, of him because he would be very good for balancing the books. So, or do they have to go and buy some leadership because clearly? It's not there at the moment, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's all relative. I don't think they have anyone who at the moment displays the kind of, you know, leadership potential that Terry, Lampard, Drogba, Balak. I mean, there were like six or seven national team captains in that team at one point. That's that's a special, unusual thing. Um, there are players in this team who I think are growing in stature within the group. I think Conor Gallagher has has come on leaps and bounds this year. I think Levi, Levi Cole will, especially now he's playing at centre-back, his more comfortable comfortable position. I think you're seeing him begin beginning to grow. Um, and I think there were flashes yesterday of why Liverpool wanted to sign him from Chelsea last summer before Chelsea committed him to that new contract and why they might have looked at him as, as a long-term successor to, to someone like Virgil van Dijk. Uh, and I think in the last few few weeks, we've seen Axel Dizassi as well kind of grow and uh, and become more of a vocal presence on the pitch and a, and a bit more of an organiser. I think Thiago Silva being out of the team has actually helped in that regard because when you've got one player who's so much older and has so much more status in the game than the rest of the group, I think it can it can serve to cow the other players in the team. And, and they just automatically defer. Whereas when Silva's not there, other players have to step up. I think we have seen that in the last few weeks at Chelsea, but it's at the very early stages. You know, they don't have a Van Dijk and that was painfully clear at Wembley. His his presence on that pitch was just something that could not be rivaled in the Chelsea team. I, you know, I take what you said about Cole Palmer. I, I don't know if he's necessarily a leader, but he he I, to me anyway, he looked like, maybe the only Chelsea player who was completely unafraid in that game and 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 looked like he he was ready to win it you know he 
he created some of the clearest chances, certainly in the second half, and he looked Chelsea's likeliest route to, to winning it in the in the final few minutes of the 90. One final one from me on Maurizio Pochettino. There, there was narratives going into the game, not just uh, Klopp on his kind of uh, farewell tour, picking, you know, potentially picking up the trophy and Pochettino's comments to make sure the referees didn't see it as that. But obviously a lot of the commentary that's around it saw this is a very, very key game for Mauricio Pochettino. He hasn't won a trophy in in England uh, yet. And, and this was seen as a, a bit of a, a marker, particularly against this so-called weakened Liverpool team that were had already lost quite a few of their, their main stars and it was seen as an opportunity. Obviously, there was the negativity around the performance in extra time that you mentioned before that fans... Uh, have reacted badly to there's the non you know sort of uh, the, uh, the the usual stuff on Twitter of Pochettino not shaking the hand or ignoring Todd Bowley as he was going up to get his uh, runners up medal. Um, but wh- where does this result leave him now? I mean, I listened to six oh six on the BBC and the majority of the commentary on there is very negative from the Chelsea fan base, albeit people mostly bring up these phone-ins to whinge. Where is the Chelsea fan base on Pochettino and where do you think he is now? Well, with the with the Bowley moment, I, I think it was probably pretty genuine. And I think actually, because Bowley's had a haircut, there's a possibility he didn't recognise him <laughs> as he was walking along the line of, of ownership. Um, there hasn't been a lot of love for Pochettino among the Chelsea fans from the start, really. Uh, I, I'm his his Spurs association wasn't as much of a stick to beat him with initially. I think partly because last season was so bleak that most Chelsea fans were just prepared to to go with anything that had some green shoots of of positivity to it. Uh, but I think patience had already been tested with him among the fans by the back to back defeats against Wolves and Liverpool where they shipped eight goals in two games and just looked really, really dire. Uh, And losing a game in this manner is not going to help the perception of him as fundamentally Spursy and a nearly man and just not, you know, quite convincing enough to, to maintain Chelsea's traditions. You know, he, he made a big play ahead of the game of trying to appeal to that of you know that they published an open letter on Chelsea's official website from him to the fans in which he was saying now we now we do what Chelsea must do we win you know he he really went he he really went put himself out there um to to try and show that you know I I am actually compatible with the culture of Chelsea that you've known and loved but the way this game played out didn't back that up and him admitting after the game that effectively the, the the team started to play for penalties in extra time, I think that's that's really damaging for him. Um, when when you said it against the approach of Liverpool, as their as their experienced legs tired and they threw on these untested youngsters, it the comparison's just really tough for him. And as far as as far as the club goes, you, you know the impression we were given ahead of the game was that win or lose the Carabao Cup wouldn't majorly move the needle in terms of the overall evaluation of the job Pochettino's doing, that it would be based on 
is the team going in the right direction? Uh, is is he building the sort of culture that can lead to longer term success? But it, he lost in in pretty much the most damaging way you would say that he could have lost, and I, I don't think that that will have helped him with anyone at Chelsea. And you you mentioned green shoots, you know, once or twice in in this conversation, and and, and as you were referring to those, you know, back to back losses against Liverpool and Wolves. So I was looking at the you know, the article that um, that was published on the Athletic, uh, which was the you know sort of drawn out from the podcast that that you did, uh, and the headline was no faith in Pochettino, no trust in the owners. Chelsea's bond with the fans is broken. Now, immediately after that, we did see back to back. Wins, so there was that uh, the derby at Selhurst Park, a couple of goals in stoppage time, but then the one that I, I think sits as the outlier, and the one that um, that we can I think genuinely uh, suggest indicates that there are rays of hope, and that was um, heading to the Etihad and and um, and and nearly taking all three points at that game. Now you, you don't play Manchester City and nearly beat them and at the very least split the points unless you're a side capable of playing quality football. So, you know, this was the bounce back from from that scenario. And, you know, and in a sliding doors moment, uh, you know, uh, Van Dijk's opening goal is chalked off. Uh, he doesn't score the second one. Chelsea somehow rather win. And the entire conversation is different. You know, nearly beat Manchester City and then win the Carabao Cup. Uh, what do you make of of that alter ego, that sort of Jekyll and Hyde uh, position, and and do you think Pochettino can can get more out of the the side, uh, 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 you know, in the in the, the the vein of what was done at the Etihad, and and less of what we uh, we saw against Liverpool Wolves, and um, and the, the sort of the uh, the fairly sort of uh, uh, tawdry way that that uh, League Cup final finished. Yeah, I, I do think there have been real signs of progress in the last few weeks, which I think makes this makes the manner of this defeat even more painful for a lot of Chelsea fans to stomach. The 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 Villa performance and the the Manchester City performance in, in particular, I think they had one good half against City against Crystal Palace and one bad half. Um but that's two and a half out of three games where they played really good football and, and looked like a cohesive team. They showed some actual resilience and togetherness. Uh, and, you know, th- those are real things, I think. And they, they also showed that Pochettino could, you know, devise effective game plans against dangerous opponents and get it right when it mattered. So I think there's a lot there's a lot there that you can be positive about. Um, but the thing is, we've, we've, we've had other moments like this during this season. There, ha- there have been more positive performances. You think back to the the home games against City, against Arsenal, against against Liverpool. And they've they've generally been followed by massive downers as well. And, I, and maybe that's baked into a new team with so much youth trying to trying to come together. But it has it, it has really tested the patience of a fan base that has been institutionalised really to expect more immediate, not necessarily trophies all the time, but competitiveness every season. And Chelsea just haven't been competitive week to week. You don't really know what you're going to get from one game to the next. And it's and it's almost a pleasant surprise when you see a team that's capable of hanging with Manchester City for 60, 70 minutes until their legs run out. 
so I, I think there are signs that that maybe given more time, Pochettino could build something good with this with this group of players. I think there's a question of of whether it would be good enough, given that his his best achievement in his career, I think, was building a series of impressive Tottenham teams that ultimately fell just short of winning. Um, and also whether he will get the time to build that from the fans and also from the club, because I think there will be a big evaluation at the end of this season of the whole state of the, the Pochettino project, because he'll have one guaranteed year left on his contract with a, a year's option. And typically in that situation, you either extend a coach or you part ways. You don't usually let them go into the final guaranteed year of their deal. So I, I think that there, there is some form of reckoning coming this this summer, uh, and it's too it's too early, I think, to say which way it will go. But the days like yesterday don't help his cause. No, and uh, there's one thing I think we do know for absolute sure and certain is that uh, if a certain R. Bramovich was still in charge at Stamford Bridge, that we wouldn't be talking about uh, if we'd be talking about who is the the next coach because uh, by this stage um, he uh, he put, probably would have pulled the, the trap door and uh, and uh, Maurizio Pochettino will be looking uh, looking for another gig. Mate, that is another conversation for another day, Liam. Um, thanks again for uh, for coming on. Um, we hope we haven't depressed too many Chelsea fans out there with the sort of uh, uh, the the, uh, the entrails of, of what's going on right now. Um, uh, and uh, I, I guess uh, we 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 hope we we can get you back on in the next sort of month or two and just watch how this all plays out. You know, uh, will we see the next exciting chapter and Maurizio Pochettino succeeds? Or we'll be looking at the the next coach on the on the production line that uh, that is the Chelsea gaffer. Always a pleasure, guys. Yeah, hopefully we can speak about it soon. Absolutely, Liam Toomey from the Athletic. Get on the Athletic. Do yourself a favour. Podcast copy the best stuff uh, available there if you're looking for uh, for your foot next dose of, uh, of football. Okay, stick around after the break. Uh, we're going to have a special edition of World Cup Corner. He just taken uh, some time as he travelled the coach back from uh, Tashkent to uh, the hotel Uzbekistan after the Matildas uh, uh, won that Olympic qualifier on the weekend. And uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a time to just sit back, relax, and just sort of enjoy the insights of some travellers. If you didn't managed to get there which you know 99.9% of us didn't uh, you're going to hear some thoughts of, of the people that did that's all next on Box to Box Willa 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 Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices Everyone's going to save a dollar or two Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices Yeah Oh flavour packed meals so We're recording on Monday evening our time It's breakfast your time isn't it Willem? It is indeed Rob I've been going the uh, the uh, the muesli and the Greek yogurt, and waiting for a little bit later in the afternoon to crack out the uh, the value packs from Hoyts. Ah, oh, yeah, well done. Um, I, I'm going to be enjoying something that's just roasting away in the oven. Some chicken pieces, skin on, uh, a few different uh, vegetables, some potatoes, sweet potatoes, and onions. Now, my wife Sandra, she's found this recipe which has uh, got one herb, and it's going to make all the difference—a Greek flavour. So you make a, a mixture of those the chicken and the vegetables and then you make a, another mixture of lemon juice olive oil and crushed garlic with a little salt drizzle it over the top and then the secret ingredient Derek you know your Greek food what, what sort of herb would uh, your, your self-respecting Greek um, sprinkle over chicken for this sort of roast di- um, kind of dish 
Oh, goodness. You put me on the spot there, Rob. I don't know. Tell me. Was it love? I, I, I bet you didn't. What were you, did you say, Willem? Was it love? Yeah, well, it is love, but it's also Greek oregano. And uh, and that's the flavour. That's the flavour that you get in your souvlaki, uh, on your chicken, on your pork, all those sorts of flavours. Lemon, garlic, olive oil. Mate, you feel like you're in the Mediterranean. Now, the Cardo family are Italians, but they do love their Greek friends. Um, the Greeks give a bit to the Italians over the journey. We don't mind. So if you like the flavours and you want just one single herb to make a real difference to your family's meals, then get the Hoyts Value Packs at your Coles, Woolworths, all good independent supermarkets. You'll be happy with Hoyts. Fill those empties with Hoyts spices, yeah. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyts Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. We hope you enjoyed listening to Liam Toomey there about the rollercoaster existence that is Chelsea right now. But we are going to wrap the show with a special edition of World Cup Corner, as we mentioned off the top of the show. As all of our listeners are well aware, my usual co-host Michael Edgley took a hearty group of passionate football travellers to Central Asia to tick off a rare box on the bucket list. You'll find plenty of pics on the Box to Box or GGA socials. But what he's also sent home are a couple of one-on-one chats with two of his group, which give us some fabulous insights into not only the football traveller, but also the part these special trips play in the fabric of the lives of the people who have the passion and the ability to take them. We'll hear from Professor Mark Bowman shortly, author of The Yawning Giant, A Sliding Doors Football Tale. But first up, Lisa Argent, who as well as being a passionate football supporter, was also the Director of Transport at the recent Qatar World Cup. We hope you enjoy. Okay, I'm in the back of the bus in Tashkent with Lisa Argent, who for the past four years with her husband, Kurt, has been living in the Middle East. She's from Queensland originally. Uh, Lisa worked at the World Expo in Dubai, at, uh, actually during COVID times, wasn't it? Um, uh, very senior role in transport. Then she worked at the FIFA World Cup Qatar, uh, basically uh, coordinating the transport services for the entire event. She's a bit of a smart cookie. And then went to work for COP, the environmental conference, uh, again, in operations, uh, a very senior role. So I want to welcome Lisa Argent to Box the Box. Hello, Lisa. Thanks, Michael. Please be here. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Lisa, you've been a regular uh, attendee on Green and Gold Army Tours. You went to France with us in 2019. You've popped up at different times. At, I think you were um, having fun with us uh, during the playoffs when, when, when the Socceroos played uh, Peru and UAE. Uh, you were obviously uh, part of our program. Uh, we, you came to a few events in Qatar, but you were working, and then you're here in Tashkent in Uzbekistan. So, so uh, notwithstanding the uh, the change that we missed out on the uh, 2020 Olympics when we were on our way to Wuhan, but uh, then we were that's right. rescheduled to Shanghai. That's right. And then I uh, ended up uh, in Sydney for those yeah. games. But uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you on Box the Box is because you live a unbelievable life in the Middle East. You've had four years working with. Um, people from all over the world um, and you've had a very senior role in the Middle East but it's allowed you to enjoy an incredible lifestyle in following football. How important is football to you and Kurt? Look fundamentally it's part of our lifestyle so without fans I suppose let me rephrase that without football there's no fans you know let's go back to the COVID times when we had all those empty stadiums and to be fair it was pretty ordinary to watch it on TV and I'm pretty sure the players uh, didn't appreciate the uh, the no banter and that at the same time but 
we have absolutely enjoyed the I suppose football across the Middle East. You know, we've gone to some Qatar Star League games. We've been to a couple of the local league, uh, the Emirates. Uh, but nothing, nothing beats uh, being with a bunch of Australians uh, in any other tournament. I remember a great day that you and I and Kurt had was we went to see Australia Socceroos play China in Charger. Remember that? <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> we oh, had all twenty of us. Yeah, that's, it was a good, it was a great fun day. It was. I think I did my nana that day because we drew nil nil after. We drew one one after leading one nil, didn't we? And it was always going to happen, wasn't it? They went. They, they had, remember the Chinese had three Brazilians. They went down twice and scored a goal at the end of the game. Well, I was, that, that, that's when our qualification wasn't looking wasn't so good. flash. We're a bit scared, but I, I think the best thing about that was those Chinese supporters that I think were brought in uh, to bring, right, up the, to bring up the event and they were on the opposite side to us. And they had they, no they idea had about no football. Idea. <laughs> <laughs> no idea. Yeah. So we've shared some incredible experiences through the Middle East, uh, your husband Kurt, you and I. Um, what's it like working in the Middle East? I mean, it must be so different to working in Australia. I mean, I've had a lot of experience at it, but um, for a woman in a senior role working in the Middle East, how do you encapsulate it, you know, in, in in a few sentences what the experience is like oh look it doesn't go without challenges there's some definitely some some challenges that we have to um get through um not just being a woman but also being an expat at the same time like it's it's pretty difficult to navigate your way through but you've got to find the right path and the right people to sort of latch onto and uh look they'll take you on their journey and at the end of the day if you can prove that you've got the the nous and the knowledge and the expertise um no one will ever uh discount you as a person and will uh will take you onto their wing and yeah definitely take you uh into places that far fewer between so i've been lucky enough to work in two countries here and um i know that Another six months, there's a couple of opportunities coming up in Saudi, which is uh, going to be a big change because it's uh, women's rights is quite different over there. But um, look, I, I'm definitely looking forward to a new challenge. And I think that a um, little bit of uh, expertise in the field uh, has certainly brought me uh, over here and I can I can see myself going further. Um, be looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I mean, when you finish, uh, you, when you take your next gig in Saudi Arabia, having worked in UAE, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, I mean, it's an incredible CV you developed. Everybody in the bus has actually gone a bit apoplectic because we've just put, driven past Hotel Uzbekistan, which was built in the 1950s by the Soviets, and nothing has, nothing has changed since then. But it's lit up like a Christmas tree. It? It, was, it was like a test... It's like one of those uh, TV test tubes, you know, with the test pattern in the old days. Unbelievable. Just, everyone's just gone crazy. Yeah, a there's different. a photo of it. Uh, a little bit Fra different to our style. Fran Sankey's just had a bit of a photo. <laughs> it looks actually it looks amazing. Who would have thought that it's a crap hotel? But anyway. A little bit uh, like the old SBS feed when the yard uh, yeah, goes yeah. off. <laughs> or when Rage ended at, you know, 4.35am <laughs> in the morning. No, um... So have you enjoyed Uzbekistan? It's been incredible, hasn't it? Look, yeah. the, the people have welcomed us incredibly. Like the, I didn't quite understand the, the history that had brought um, Uzbekistan to where yeah, it is Yeah, Timor Lane, hey? Like it's yeah, definitely, it's uh, definitely yeah. and our trip down to Samarkand was absolutely incredible. And uh, look, to be fair, the, the temperatures as they are, like minus 12, sorry, minus eight um, when we woke up there and then uh, it felt like minus 12. <laughs> Definitely wasn't uh, prepared uh, from some of the lives oh, in the I just, I want to paint a bit of a picture here. So we've, <laughs> we've got a bunch of us, uh, on, to people on the tour that have come from Australia who uh, are well prepared with coats and beanies and uh, enough layers to survive in the snow. And we've had, as we, as we affectionately call you and Kurt, the Emiratis with us, you've come across with about five T-shirts 
one jumper and a dodgy, dodgy bloody um, jacket. Back. You guys have looked freezing cold the whole time. Not really used to anything below 20 <laughs> degrees is absolutely freezing. Like, you've got to be shitting me. Like, we've got this cold, we've got, we've woken up the snow six days in a row. Mm, like, wow. uh, certainly wasn't what I had pants when I, uh, when I said, yeah, let's go on the GGA army tour again. I didn't, <laughs> didn't expect this. No, it's been fun. Uh, thanks for having a chat to me in the bus on the way home. We've just arrived back at our accommodation. I think we'll go and have a one more drink to celebrate yeah. the Matildas 3-0 win nice. over Uzbekistan today. 100% nice final whiskey to say thanks for the girls yeah, and a great win today. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for joining joining us on Box the Box. Well, I'm here with Professor Mark Bowman, who has just enjoyed his first Green and Gold Army tour um, here in Uzbekistan. We've been to Tashkent and Samarkand. Um, before I ask you, Mark, about um, your experiences on the tour and how much you've loved uh, enjoying learning and visiting all the sites in Uzbekistan, we've had a very special tour because we've had, um, on this Matildas program, we've had some pretty special women who've made huge contributions to the development of women's football over many generations, or over over many years, I should say. Uh, why don't you just reflect a little bit about just uh, what that part of the tour has meant in learning about uh, the foundations of women's football and how that gave uh, the current Football Australia a launching pad to achieve what they're doing now? Yeah, well, um, like most Australian football fans, I have not so much passively, but mostly passively uh, watched the Matildas through the la their last few Olympic campaigns and World Cup campaigns. But of course, the steam started to uh, generate uh, leading into and, and into the World Cup, which was something that I predicted and came to be true that, that just took Australia by storm. And, and it, so, to actually fill in the gaps by meeting people who were, you know, influential, really resourceful and uh, savvy women who were there at, at day one, back in the late 70s, was an absolute privilege to me, you know, and, and it was so, it's so satisfying to see that their, um, uh, you know, things that they never thought would happen are happening and watching, you know, I was got to see the evolution of that in them just that little bit more even today you know the, 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 yeah that was that was really special to me you know and and also to hear of their own struggles I mean, I mean sometimes you see that some of that was in the public domain but 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 a lot of that was sort of one-sided and and you know I'm not one to take sides but but on it was was really important to know that the real depth behind that for me. Um, it's my second trip, by the way, with the Green and Gold. Oh, it is, that's right. Remember? It is, yeah. yes, yes, it <laughs> but, is. That, yeah. But that's okay. That's okay. But but what I've said a couple of times on this trip, and it's actually became evident for me since the World Cup last year, is that I, I was a follower of the men's team and still am since the, since the early 70s. And it's exponential that I can now follow Australian football in both genders. Uh, and it's like one and one equals four. It, it's you know, a great every, way to every, describe every it. Every few weeks, yeah. I can I can watch a yeah. I, I can watch our national teams play, yeah. and and I I don't actually think I mean I'm, I'm I'm incredibly biased towards soccer football anyway, but but you know now that's just no one can match that. They couldn't match it before, but now they really can't match it. Yeah, yeah. And just some thoughts on Uzbekistan. I mean, we've been in Tashkent and Samarkand, the two. Uh, 
biggest population bases, but mm. incredible history and sites. Yeah. This country's on the move. Um, did it meet your expectations, or was it was it different to what you thought you might experience um, here? I, 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 it's been on my bucket list for a long, long time. That that I, you know, was part of the reason for coming, as well as the football. I, I'm was, I've been fascinated by that middle. I don't know. It's not Middle Ages, but 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 the history of this country from around the 1000 to the 1400s. Yeah. Um, and and was. You know, because I knew about the, the Silk Road, which I've discovered is a bit of a misnomer. Yeah. Um, but but that, but I was just flabbergasted that 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 time in the 1300s when when under Timur they they basically um, you know went on this amazing conquering and expansionary runs. They they smashed the Golden Horde, which was to their north. Uh, you know, a descendant Carnate um, Empire, and got as far as this. Kiev and the out the outskirts of Moscow. Yeah, then they, all they, the way they, down to Istanbul they, as well. They, they smashed yeah. the whole of Persia. Yeah. Uh, to got to Istanbul, got as far as Damascus, um, went south and completely ransacked Delhi, yeah. reduced it to rubble. Yeah. Um, and he was on his way to China when he when, when he, he got died. a shaving injury and died <laughs> apparently. <laughs> but but yeah, so so that was and then to see wasn't only that, but they were. Um, uh, the 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 wealth that they generated because they are right in the middle of the they were the main truck stop on the on on the on on the east west trade route and and so they became rich and powerful. Sorry, I'm rambling on here, but but roll forward where they'd been of latter times part of the Russian Empire and then under the USSR. But since 1991, where they're a, you know they had a baby boom and they're a young country. They're organised. Their government has obviously invited, you know, a lot of foreign investment. Um, it's a city on the move. It's a young population, proud of their country. Um, they've obviously got their challenges still, like what mm. we all have. Um, there's a way to go, but but new cash. Tashkent and everything was just has been a fantastic eye opener. It has, and we haven't spoken about the, the Soviet uh, legacy too, which is evident wherever you go, whether, oh, whether it's metro stations or, and, and I or, love that or stuff. apartment buildings. Oh, it's fantastic. I, I love yeah. that stuff. Everything yeah. from that I, iconic poster. Yeah. I, I love poster art. Yeah. Of, and uh, the hotel is Beckerstown. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that, that was great. And you yeah. still see architecture around town. Um, and uh, their monument to their earthquake, which is very Soviet-inspired. Yeah. So it's been a good mix. They're clearly trying to bury that a bit. They are, aren't they? That's right. Uh, but it's hard to bury the, the the architecture and infrastructure, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the subways. And we topped it off today by uh, heading to Millie Stadium, and in one degree, we all huddled together to keep we, warm. We and and we, we saw the Matildas struggle in the first half. They did. I mean, this is this is modern football. I mean, I mean, I mean, 21st century football is is a levelling experience because you, can, if you have a, a group of players who can organise their defence, you can make it, it hard to break down. And we've seen that model in the last Men's Asian Cup, in World Cups, uh, that's just life. So, so the job of the modern football tactical group and management group is to have midfielders and, and attacking people who can break that down mm. and, and that requires patience yeah. um, you know you can't get flustered at it and that's what showed I mean and the class showed out in the end it, it did and absolutely the, the strength yeah, of yeah, athlete yeah, and yeah. class and, and look 
this is a two-legged affair. A lot of people new to the game don't understand the the challenges of a two-legged, you know, where, where you, as you said at the time, it's a four-quarter right. game, and 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 you've got to carry people through a 28-hour flight home, and you, you know, everybody says, why didn't you stick the strikers on first up? And it was, well, you know, it's all very well in retrospect, but if that game had today be nil all and we were chasing it in Melbourne with 20 minutes to go you want a fresh Caitlin Ford you, you know you, you want right. you want those and, and, and Michelle Hayman you want those people up you, you know so coaches get a lot of stick including from people like me all the time but 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 you know I, okay. I could see that he did okay they, they did well and and people forget I don't know how well you want to talk for but but That's people right. people forget how tough away games are. People take away games. You, you know, people watch on television. Away games are tough as freaking nails. I've been to multiple ones. You rarely, it's not common to see a win away. That's right. Um, I've been to, been to Japan three times with the men's. One draw and two losses. Uh, or maybe even two draws and a loss or something. Very hard to win. Um, uh, against anybody. Look, look at the men's. You know, playing um, who was it, Lebanon or, or, or Palestine on neutral ground away. Yeah, it was difficult. It's yeah. tough. Yeah. It's tough, and so credit to the girls for doing that. Um, yeah, and and we've football Australia's got a a good setup now. I mean, they've got medical people and logistics people. They're very experienced that, now. They've that, got that a, a lot of knowledge that. to draw upon. I mean, yeah. you've got to stick players on a plane for 28 yeah. hours and go from 2 degrees to yeah. 36 degrees with 98% humidity. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. That, that, that requires, requires a special expertise. Yeah. It was well, been fantastic trip. And a pleasure to spend time with you and get to know you. And yeah, yeah. I've loved every moment of it. And uh, let's do it again soon. We will, we will, absolutely. So we hope you enjoyed those reflections from Mark and Lisa on their trip to to Uzbekistan to see the Matildas ultimately triumph over Uzbekistan. If you liked what you heard, jump onto the Green and Gold Army website and maybe you'll be the next traveller with Edge and his, and his troop. Uh, if you enjoy listening to Box to Box, please subscribe to Stoppage Time, Box to Box and the main show, our podcasts, our tweets as well. Follow us on Box to Box NTS, like us on Facebook and make sure you join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.